and Raising Rare, we are bringing you the story of a young father whose son has an ultra-rare disorder known as Sedegatian type spondial metaphysial dysplasia, or SSMD. My name is Kevin Fryert. Each episode, we will find out what is going on in the life of Sanath and his son, Raghav. We will talk about Raghav's growth and development, ongoing and upcoming research, and the challenges and adventures that raising a child with a nearly unknown condition brings. Come join us to hear the story unfold. Welcome back to Raising Rare. Today we have a very special forward-thinking guest. Mike Hugh is a rare dad and a genomic scientist. He has two sons with mucopolysaccharidosis type 2, also known as Hunter syndrome. We often speak with parents who find themselves thrown into this world of rare disease absolutely cold, with no or little training or experience in the world of genetics, biology, and scientific endeavor. This is certainly not the case for Mike. Sonneth, are you as excited about the discussion as I am? Yeah, I'm super excited. We speak to so many different parents, and including myself, I had no background in, in biology or genetics or, or any of these. I had no idea what a DNA uh, was, what a gene was. I, I didn't even know what a cell was. So, you know, we talked about all of my journey of reading Wikipedia and, and learning about what biology is um, back in the day. But I'm super excited to talk to Mike, who has that background and who has a, a different jumping off point into the world of rare diseases. It's not easy to live in this world, to take care of kids with rare disease. I'm sure there's a lot of commonalities that we can, uh, we would share, uh, but I'm also excited to learn about your journey, Mike. So, Mike, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your two sons? Yes, uh, thank you guys for inviting me onto the podcast. Uh, as uh, Kevin mentioned, I'm a genomic scientist. Uh, my career has been involved around developing genomic testing tools and diagnostic tests using genomics. I have two boys. I have three, but two of them were affected by uh, MPS2. And the youngest one, the little one, uh, is not. Um, and uh, I, <laughs> I want to uh, chime in on Kevin's comment earlier uh, about throwing cold into this world of rare disease. <laughs> My background in biology and genomics didn't really prepare me that well, I have to tell you. And, uh, uh, and it's funny because in my early career, I was working at a company developing cytogenetics tools, which is a, a, a set of tools for postnatal testing of kids who are suspected to have genetic disease and as the you know product developer of that uh, product i have come to know a great deal about uh, all kinds of uh, rare genetic diseases and you know nothing at that time had ever occurred to me that this could be happening to me so i i, I was just as you know everyone else thrown cold into the world of rare disease Wow, it's, I find this the opposite, Mike. Every time I learn about a new rare disease, I start looking at my own symptoms and saying, oh no, I have this. But in your situation, you, it came as unexpected. But before we hear about how that happened, our listeners may not be familiar with MPS2. So can you tell us a little bit more about the condition? So MPS2 or mucopolysaccharidosis type 2 is uh, 
uh, a subtype of disease belonging to a big uh, disease family called lysosomal storage disorder. So basically, uh, my boys and other patients with MPS2, they lack a critical enzyme that works in the body to break down bodily waste, if you will. These wastes molecules, they're typically large molecules, they are recycled into a, a cellular organelle called uh, lysosomes. Uh, you can think of it as a trash can or in some sense a compost can. Um, you throw something into it, the lysosome has a whole bunch of enzymes that breaks them down into single molecules and they get discreted. Some of them gets recycled and used, some of them just gets uh, uh, out of the body. And so this critical lack of enzyme makes some of the cellular waste, uh, uh, you know, unrecyclable and they accumulate in the lysosomes and uh, the lysosomes will just eventually balloon up like a, uh, just like a balloon. And it takes over the cellular functions because physically it's squeezing everything else. And so patients with MPS2 uh, it, it affects every part of their body, basically, uh, but it's more affected in their uh, joints, their hearts, their uh, internal organs, and most importantly, uh, about 70% of the patients have involvement in their development uh, because the, the molecule cannot uh, get through uh, the blood-brain barrier uh, and it gets trapped in the brain as well, uh, and so uh, they have developmental delays, they have all kinds of behavior problems. You know, there's a spectrum of disease ramification, if you will. Uh, a lot of patients share some similar symptoms, but there are some uh, pretty unique ones uh, with individuals as well. So how did you find out that the boys had this condition? It started, uh, I think it's about almost 12 years ago. Uh, when our oldest son turned two, that's typically about the time the kid starts to, or toddler, starts to uh, uh, learn how to speak. Uh, and he's apparently delayed. Uh, and so in our annual checkups with the pediatrician, uh, he reassured us that this is pretty typical for bilingual families with speak Mandarin at home. And uh, that, that was, I think, our first hint, uh, just a little past two. And then with that, uh, you know, we also started to send him to uh, uh, family care. And the teacher told us that she thinks that our oldest son's um, hands were really stiff compared to other kids. But of course, he was the first one, so we had no idea how soft or uh, uh, you know, flexible uh, they, they should be, and we felt it's pretty normal. And the pediatrician reassured us this is within normal range. It didn't turn serious until later on, I think when he was uh, about two and a half, uh, when his hand stiffing seems to be more, I guess, uh, abnormal than what we uh, hoped it would be. And it was apparent that his shoulder joints are uh, limited as well. He cannot raise his arms above the shoulder level. It, it made him look clumsy uh, at times. So we started um, seeking more help. And long story short, after about eight months uh, of diagnostic journey, we finally ended up with a geneticist 
who, interestingly, has seen a hunter boy, I think six months prior to encountering us, and that was his first diagnosis in his 40 years uh, as a, a medical geneticist. Uh, so that tells you how rare uh, this disease really is. So that's how we got to know uh, the diagnosis uh, of our oldest boy. And then at that time, our... It was very fortunate that that geneticist had seen that just six months before. Most people are going in and they've never seen it. When we talked with other families uh, in the community afterwards, it's not uncommon for many of them to go through a much longer diagnostic odyssey of, you know, two years, three years. And in the literature, it was reported as an, uh, you know, average uh, period of uh, 2.7 years, something like that. So we're, we were definitely lucky. Um, and, you know, that's how we found out the younger one as well, because, you know, even though he didn't have the same kind of symptoms that his elder brother had at the time, because he was only one. But, um, uh, you know, we got him tested uh, anyway, and he turned out to be positive as well for the disease. So they were diagnosed at m much different ages, much different developmental stages. Have you noticed any differences because of that timing of the diagnosis in their life? I think in hindsight, at the year one mark, they were similar. I would say uh, the oldest boy, his uh, joints were probably a little stiffer. Um, but other than that, they were pretty similar at that age. Now, he was diagnosed when he was close to four, his younger brother when he was one, and they both started therapy at the same time. The therapy um, uh, just uh, very quickly. It's an enzyme replacement therapy. It basically puts the missing enzyme back into their body. Uh, and so they started that at a different age. And, uh, you know, throughout the course of the past decade, we've seen plenty of differences in how that uh, affects them. It's incredible how the diagnosis actually happened um, by physicians and not through genetic testing. Um, because in my case, like no physician was able to tell um, my son's disease apart from other diseases. And uh, in fact, we did two wrong um, diagnoses originally before we did an exome sequencing. Um, in, in your case, did you did you eventually do any genetic sequencing at the end of the day or, or was um, a clinical diagnosis confirming disease? We certainly did sequencing at the end, but it was more of a confirmatory test. Um, I think with lysosomal storage disorders, it's big enough of a category that the, uh, and, and they have very clear biomarkers uh, in the urine and in the blood that you can test for. Um, so they are relatively easier to pick up once the geneticist uh, or the attending physician has a clue of what to uh, test for. Um, I, now that I'm in this field, uh, I know there's a lot of genetic diseases that does not have any biomarkers that you can test for. The only way to know is to do sequencing. Uh, and so it's certainly becoming more uh, of a, a, a useful diagnostic tool than 10 years ago. So the enzyme replacement therapy, is it known whether that crosses the blood-brain barrier? You mentioned that before. Actually, that was the unfortunate thing. Uh, it does not cross the blood-brain barrier because it's a big molecule. 
And uh, as I mentioned, about 70% of the kids were affected uh, in the brain as well. So the uh, waste accumulation in the brain affects their development and their um, uh, behavior and uh, you know sleep. Uh, uh, neurologically, it was uh, uh, quite a uh, challenge. That was the limitation of pretty much any enzyme replacement therapy. Uh, and, and a decade ago, there really wasn't much option uh, going on to uh, get into the brain. There was a trial, uh, a single only trial uh, that tries to eject the, uh, or I should say, inject the enzyme into the intrathecal space, whereby it will uh, passively migrate to the brain and hopefully take care of some of the buildup. Uh, but even that trial was really hard to get into. We spent almost four years trying to push our oldest one into the trial. Uh, and then, you know, even with he enrolled, uh, his younger brother didn't get enrolled until two years later. So, you know, the boys got into the trial at a pretty advanced age where what you could tell is the damages to the brain has already been made, uh, at least to some extent, and they are irreversible. Uh, we always think of brain as very elastic, and, 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 and it is, but at the same time, um, once you pass a certain age, those uh, damages are really, really hard to uh, fix by itself, uh, while the therapy itself isn't really targeting at fixing any of the damages, it's just targeting at removing the waste. So uh, in a way you can think of it as preventing further damages. So, you know, even with uh, an enzyme delivered into the brain, if you will, uh, it still has its limitations. And the other thing about enzyme replacement therapy, and this is more of a logistical pain, uh, the enzymes in the body gets turned over pretty fast. Uh, in fact, it goes uh, to a 50% level in merely hours. Um, and so our physician, who's an expert uh, of uh, MPS2 at uh, the Children's Hospital of Oakland back then, uh, now UCSF, uh, he told us he thinks the best therapy, if possible, will be a continuous infusion of the enzyme 24-7. Uh, now, of course, that's not possible. So what we uh, ended up doing as a standard therapy is a weekly infusion, uh, which lasts uh, typically uh, four to six hours. Towards the end of it, uh, we were able to shorten it to half a day, but you know, it used to be a whole day deal. Uh, and especially in the beginning when the boys had immune reactions to uh, the enzyme replacement therapy, which was, I, I would say, pretty typical uh, for boys. You know, it's basically taking a foreign uh, uh, protein into their body. Um, when that happened, we have to slow down the infusion rate uh, way lower than what it can be. And, you know, it used to be an overnight stay at the hospital, a two-day deal to complete the therapy. And, and that happens every week. So, you know, in terms of the uh, logistic burden, <laughs> I would say, we definitely paid our dues. And you you talk about it as, yeah, it's time, you've got to be overnight and all that. But then when you think about doing it with like kids that are around 10 years old or younger, I mean, that's, that's just such a burden um, to, to keep them kind of down for that amount of time is really hard. 
And towards the end of it, they get they get so used to it that they you know certainly cooperate a lot with you and you know being calm in their chairs and whatnot. But it took a long time for them to get used to that, and you know because of their uh, developmental delay, it's really hard to entertain them through that long hours you know of stay uh, you know basically in the bed or in a chair but with the lying attached. So um, yeah, it 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 really is a ordeal. Yeah, so your your doctor's vision of continuous infusion, you know, they do that for diabetes patients now with insulin, but it's a lot different. It, it took decades to get there, um, and it's not intrathecal, um, which is you know putting something right into your spinal fluid. That's that's a little more technically challenging. Yeah, and they have to go through um, uh, anesthesia every time they do that. So it become a monthly treatment in the trial. And every time they go through that, it's, you know, like they have to be uh, fully down for those uh, hours and for a five-minute injection and then recover. And, you know, the, there's a concern, certainly a medical concern, that repetitive anesthesia would be a damage to the brain itself. But... You know, to us at the time, we basically had no choice. It's either do it and have some uh, potential benefits or not do it and see your child, you know, just continue to decline. Uh, so we chose to do it. And I wanted to mention, uh, you know, one thing real quick that uh, this is what my wife initiated and it certainly uh, resulted in some uh, pretty uh, good outcomes. Uh, she insisted that we can train the boys to take it uh, while they're awake. Uh, so there is a device that uh, can replace the uh, lumbar puncture in, in terms of injecting into the intrathecal space. And that device, once you implant it, uh, it's at the back of their uh, uh, spine. And uh, but you do you go through a met, uh, metal pore to inject, but you do need to make sure the boys are very still, which is you know very challenging for these boys. Um, she insists that we can train them to do it uh, without being you know uh, taking under again. Uh, and we tried, and our uh, PI, I, I really appreciate his uh, uh, openness to this. We tried, and we actually succeeded. And he thought it was not possible for MPS2 boys. Uh, and then he saw what our boys were able to do. And he was able to convince other families that they don't need to go through full anesthesia to do the uh, uh, in, in, in injection every month. And, you know, I think it, it saved other boys many, uh, you know, full body anesthesia as well throughout time. So, um, I was uh, definitely very uh, proud of her, you know, making that uh, suggestion. It, it shows you what parents can do uh, when when they're facing the, uh, the the dire outcomes or the the, the non preferable choices uh, to the kids. And it also shows these kids are a lot more resilient than people may give them credit for, and they they can learn. It just takes work, a lot of work. In the second part of our discussion with Mike Hugh, we will talk about Project Guardian, his effort to provide genomic uniform assessment of rare disease in all newborns. Raising Rare is produced by Salem Oaks, empowering patients and caregivers to shape the future of medicine. CureGPX4.org is dedicated to finding a treatment and cure for SSMD. 
You can donate to Cure GPX4 on the Raising Rare podcast page or at curegpx4.org. You can continue to follow Raga's story next time on Raising Rare. (laughs) 